0: We'll continue in our Revelation study. Last week, we started going through the seven churches. I proposed to go through them twice, once showing the historical model of the eras that these churches might represent, and then go back again and look at the spiritual applications. And last week, I made it through the first five. Just to review, the model that I proposed was that the church at Ephesus, which Is usually called the Loveless Church in the headings. And I think it would be better to call it the Truth Church because they really did do a great job with the truth part. They just forgot or started fading on the love part, which was unacceptable to Christ. And so the Ephesians Church represents the time period between Pentecost and the last apostle leaving the earth around 100 A.D., so 33 to 100 is my proposed uh, model. And then the church at uh, Smyrna, so you go into this time of really intense persecution and Jesus just says, just hang on, just hang on. I'm just asking you to just hang in there. And that I proposed going from the time of John's death in 100 AD to 330 when Constantine has legalized Christianity and actually moves to the capital and kind of leaves the, the Western Empire largely to the influence of the church. And then you go into Pergamos, which was the seat of power. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And, of course, what happens in this next era from 330 uh, to, I proposed, uh, 800, when there is the imposition of official Christendom, when uh, Charlemagne becomes the Holy Roman Emperor and there's an official merging of church power and state power. So during this time of Pergamos is a time where syncretization happens, where... The church goes from having been really purified and and, a, and actually brings down the Roman Empire and now it gets infiltrated by the influences of the world and tries to have both like Balaam did. And then you have the corrupt church, of course, once you get this power and then it becomes official in the Charlemagne area, the Holy Roman Empire. So we're going to reconstitute the Roman Empire, but this time it's going to be Christianized and, and, and now we have things like the... Uh, the emperor of uh, Spain sending uh, Columbus over to discover the new world and enslaving the local population and saying they'll make good Christians and good slaves and their general idea is if you enslave someone you've done them a favor because now they're uh, they're a slave of the king and the king is a representative of God therefore they're a servant of God. That, that was their reasoning. And so this very corrupt church then it period ends in the Reformation 1517 is the usually considered the official start date of the Reformation so I proposed that and then you get the dead church the reformed church it has a reputation for being alive but actually it's dead and we looked at instances in the reformed church how it was it was actually very legalistic not a lot changed the the governing structures changed and truth was reintroduced but there was still this command and control orientation so you see the emphasis on the desire for truth to be joined with love all the way through this it starts with ephesus you had it now you're losing it and then of course in the persecuted area era God just asked them to hang on. You don't really have the capacity to love when you're being persecuted. You just have the capacity to hang on. And then you have these syncretized era. But in most of these churches, there is a a, a faithful remnant. And so now we get to an amazing church, which is the Philadelphia church. So this is chapter 3, verse 7. And I'm going to propose that this era runs from 1727. And I'll explain why I picked that date. To 1919, 1727 is the beginning of the Moravian Revival, and 1919 is the end of World War I, so that's, that's the dates that I propose. Philadelphia means brotherly love, and I think what we'll see in this church and why God likes it so much is because it's got truth, it's spreading truth, but has amazing love, and we'll see that as we go through So, to the angel, the messenger of the church of Philadelphia, write these things, says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens, I know your works, see? I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. And to know that I've loved you, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast churches previous, other than Smyrna, where he says, just hold on, we saw this pattern of you have this good thing, but you have something that you need to correct. Well, Philadelphia doesn't have anything in need of correction. He's just praising the church of Philadelphia. Well, what happened during this era? The reason I picked 1727 and this Moravian revival is because it really sparked a worldwide mission movement, unlike anything that's ever happened before. The Moravians were a persecuted group that came from Czechoslovakia, Bohemia. There was a guy named John Huss there who was influenced by John Wycliffe. So they're like 1300s guys. So Wycliffe translated the Bible into English it was Middle English he translated it from Latin so it was it wasn't an original language transaction but it was something people could actually read and of course that was in the era of the corrupt church and when the 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 power was vested in these in these uh, leaders in the church and they began to abuse the power so of course when you're trying to keep power you don't want information to be available you want to control the information that's one of the ways you keep the power and so what they did is they controlled the Bible. They didn't want people to read the Bible. So Wycliffe comes along. He translates the Bible into English. That's very controversial, and they, that was that was resisted. It was it was repealed. Well, that, that idea, and then, then it was followed by Tyndall, who then wanted to translate the Bible from the original languages. Because as the, one of the interesting things that's happened in history is the Turks came in in the Middle Ages in the fourteen hundreds and started driving the Christians out of the Eastern Empire. They took it over in 1453 finally. When they started driving people out of the Eastern Empire, the Christians out of the Eastern Empire, these Greeks, the Eastern Church, which was pretty separate from the Western Church, started fleeing back to the Western Church and with them they brought their Greek manuscripts and their Greek scholarship. So interesting thing that happens to actually the Renaissance and the Enlightenment was really created by the Turks were founded by the Turks in large measure when they drove the Greek scholars to the west and there was this huge revival of Greek scholarship. Well, anyway, Tyndall started a translation in the 1400s from the original languages and he was murdered for it. Well, this same spark started in Czechoslovakia with John Huss and his followers became a a sect that hung, hung on and a couple of centuries later they were still hanging in there but still persecuted. So in 1722, a guy showed up on the doorstep of a count in Germany named Zinzendorf, Count Zinzendorf. Now, this Holy Roman Empire was, again, an attempt to reconstitute the Roman Empire, but this time it was Christianized and vest the authority of God in these kings, so in the Roman Empire, we had the dictators that said, "I am God myself. Worship me, and I'm a god along with these pagan gods, and that's how I'm legitimized." So that falls, and then you have all this kind of fractionation that takes place, and then Charlemagne ascends the throne. And he says, "Okay, now I am ruling on behalf of God." So it's a it's kind of a recasting of uh, emperor worship. This time, however, there is a there is a shared authority. It's not all vested in one man. There's authority shared with the church. There's authority shared with other nobles. Well, this Count Zinzendorf was one of those nobles. He was in the court of the Holy Roman Empire. The, the seat of the Holy Roman Empire was in Germany, the Franks. He was raised to, to, to that end. However, he was raised by a godly grandmother and aunt who... Really instilled in him a, a, a biblical orientation, and he, from his earliest youth, was really devoted to Christ. And when he was finishing his studies, he was traveling through Europe, and he and he saw this painting in this particular spot of Jesus, and on it it says, "I've done this for you. What have you done for me?" And he was really smitten of heart to say, "What have I done for Christ?" What have I really done? And he really devoted his life then to say, I'm going to do everything I can for Christ. So one of the things he, he decided to do was to uh, help the poor. So on his doorstep comes this Moravian from, uh, from Czechoslovakia. And he says, I'm persecuted. Can I settle on your land? Because in this era, the era of serfdom, there were only a handful of landowners and so they would allow you to fence a part of the property, but the no, the nobleman would retain title to the land. So he said, yes, you can have a settlement on my land. And he did this as a way of helping this poor person. So he told his friends, and there were just a little group of houses, and Zinzendorf didn't pay much attention to them at first. Then he began to visit them, and he, on his first visit, he got to know them and sensed that, hey, these people have the same kind of spiritual orientation I have. So he began to disciple these guys. Again, Zinzendorf was very well educated, both uh, in a, a secular sense as well as in, a, as in a biblical sense. So he began to, he began to di- dis- disciple these people. And they started spreading the word back in Czechoslovakia. Hey, there's a place where we can have freedom. So pretty soon there's about 300 Moravians that come to this, uh, this little settlement that Zinzendorf is sponsoring. However, they brought with them schisms. It doesn't take but 300 people to create schisms in a church, right? It doesn't take but about 20, maybe 10, maybe two, maybe two. Okay, so they, they started having fractionation in their church. And Zinzendorf started going from door to door counseling these people on how to love others. So in 1727, there was a revival that broke out among this small group of people. And they started loving one another. And as part of that outgrowth, they started a 24-hour prayer initiative. 300 people. So someone's praying 24 hours a day. That prayer revival lasted for 100 years. Let me just read you something about the Moravians here from this Christian history magazine. This is where I get most of my history. It's lots of scholars that have put stuff into one article that I can understand. This was the very first issue of Christian history. They took on their very first issue they covered the Moravians because of the immense impact that these guys had. The golden decade of seventeen thirty two now so this revival started in seventeen twenty seven so seventeen thirty two to seventeen forty two stands unparalleled in Christian history in so far as missionary expansions concerned. More than seventy Moravian missionaries from a community of not more than six hundred inhabitants had answered the call by 1742. So, six hundred people, and they send out seventy missionaries. Now, where did they send these missionaries to? Zinzendorf went to Copenhagen as part of his duties on the court, and he met a black man. This black man had been in the East Indies as a slave and had come to Christ, and he begged Zinzendorf to. Send someone back to these Caribbean islands to spread the gospel there. So Zinzendorf felt like this was the call. So he came back. He presented this to the congregation, and a couple of guys said, "I'll go." Now you bear in mind here that uh, the slaves were considered subhuman. The idea that you would go and take the gospel to people like this was unthinkable. When they started, when this started getting disgust, they were laughed at and ridiculed. They prepared for about a year and then two of them went. And in order to actually communicate with the slaves, in some instances, some of the people actually lived alongside them. And if you read the accounts of what it was like to be a slave in the East Indies, it was worse than being a donkey on a farm. They were just absolutely treated horribly. In fact, uh there's an enormous contrast between the way slaves were treated in America and they were treated in the East Indies. In America they were treated as valuable assets. And actually by the time of the of this 1700s a slave importation had been outlawed and almost all the slaves were native born in in the US. But in the Caribbean they, they, there was not enough nutrition for hardly any babies to be born, so it, was, it continued to rely on importation. So they would just churn, churn these people and kill them, basically. It was, it was really horrific. So the Moravians went there, and many, many of them died. It was extremely difficult, but they, they persevered. And they went to other places in the earth, some of the most difficult places. On the ship of one of their journeys a fellow named John Wesley bumped into these Moravians. He called them the Germans. And there was a particular instance that John Wesley wrote in his diaries. And he said, we had this terrible storm. And people were screaming and all the English people were were just beside themselves because we thought we were going to die. The mast broke. Water was was swamping the boat. And these Germans were over there singing hymns. And so afterwards, when the storm had passed, we went to the Germans and said, weren't you afraid? They said, no, thankfully we're not afraid. We're not afraid to die. Well, were your women and children afraid? "Uh, No, no, they're not afraid to die. These people had so embraced the notion that our lives count when we lay them down, that they just literally were not afraid to die if they're in the... Lord's service. This was the event. This in, this interaction with the Germans was the event that led to John Wesley's conversion. And so the Moravians sparked Protestant missions. One of the things that Zinzendorf was uh, challenged with was persecuted with was the idea that you're intruding on God's sovereignty by going out and converting the heathen. If God wants to convert the heathen, He'll do it Himself. That was kind of the Calvinist position at the time. And it sparked the whole Wesleyan revival, which had an immense impact in America. So, in America, you had something called the Great Awakening. And it was roughly 1730s, 1740s. So, roughly in the same era, and in part, sparked by the Moravians. Let me read this little diary entry about a farmer from Connecticut in 1740. He says, "I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and ran home to my wife. This was after he had heard that George Whitfield was going to preach. George Whitfield was the main guy that was the preacher of this great awakening. I, t- I told her to make ready quickly to go hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middletown, then run to the p- my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing I should be too late." As I came nearer the road, I heard a noise, something like low rumbling thunder, and presently found it was the noise of horses' feet coming down the road. Every horse seemed to go with all his might to carry his rider to hear news from heaven for the saving of souls. It made me tremble. I turned and looked towards the great river, Connecticut River, and saw the ferry boats running swift backward and forward bringing over loads of people. The land and banks over the river looked black with people and horses. All along the 12 miles I saw no man at work in his field, but all seemed to be gone. When I saw Mr. Whitfield come upon the scaffold, he looked almost angelical, a young, slim, slender youth before some thousands of people with a bold, undaunted countenance. In my hearing how God was with him everywhere as he came along, it solemnized my mind and put me into a trembling fear before he began to preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God, and a sweet solemnity sat upon his brow. And my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound." By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw my righteousness would not save me. So and that, that's what happened in this uh, great, great Awakening. Out of this Great Awakening came the United States. There was a, the preaching from the pulpit of the Black Road Regiment is really what underlay the American Revolution, which was really not a revolution. It was a defensive action to prevent an invasion. After hearing Mr. Whitfield preach in 1750, John Thorpe and three friends went to a tavern and began mimicking Whitfield. At Thorpe's turn, he grabbed a Bible, jumped on the table and shouted, I will beat you all! But then his eyes fell on, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And Thorpe was suddenly struck by his sinfulness. He stopped the charade, began preaching in earnest, and two years later he became one of John Wesley's itinerant preachers. Part of what happened in the Great Awakening was people were commissioned to go out and preach the gospel just as they were. And there was this mass expansion of lay ministers, Methodist and Baptist predominantly, and they swept the American territories. And it all started with a little group of people, like 300 people that came together, and one rich young ruler who said yes, Count Zinzendorf. And then, of course, There was the China Mission, the most famous of which is Hudson Taylor. It started in the mid-1800s. They actually took an approach of non-denominational and they took an approach of engaging the Chinese such that they could do it for themselves. And then, of course, with the advent of communism, we didn't hear about that church for some time. And it wasn't that long ago before all of us learned for the first time there was a massive house church in China and unquestionably the largest church in all of human history. Now in China, over a hundred million people by many estimates. And it started because a handful of people went to China. They didn't have much resources. They were underfunded. These Moravian missionaries, one of their their tenets was no support from home. You have to earn your own keep while you're on the mission field. Be a carpenter. be Be a tent maker of some sort. And they just did. They took their little strength and were faithful with it. And it changed the world. And, and that's what Jesus says in this area. You have a little strength and you've persevered. There was also William Carey. William Carey in the 1800s took missions to, to India and he spread the gospel. And there's a vibrant church in India today. So this missions movement was quite incredible had a little strength, but they persevered. When I was a child, one of the things we would say to one another is, God, I'll do anything you want me to do, but please don't make me a missionary to Africa. (laughs) If you're old enough, you remember that. The reason why we would say that is because the generation before us, when you accepted the call to Africa, which many, many people did, you had a 1% survival rate. 99% of the initial missionaries going to Africa were either killed or died of disease. And they went in waves. They went in droves anyway. They had a little strength. And they did what they could with it. Unbelievable worldwide impact during this Philadelphia period. Absolutely incredible. So you had the first Great Awakening in America, 1730s, 1750s. The second Great Awakening was a revivalist movement, a fellow named Charles Finney, and out of that came the abolition of slavery. People actually took things to heart and put it into practice. So first is the preservation of self-governance, and then comes the abolition of slavery. And then in the late 1800s there was a third Great Awakening. You may not know much about this one. I have a a personal connection with this one which is very interesting. Uh, However, Before I go into that, let me tell you about a real great cab ride I had last week. I learned a lot of geography and sociology from cab drivers. Much more reliable than anything you find in the library. And this particular cab driver was from southern Mexico, is from southern Mexico, just on the Guatemalan border. His first language is something I can't pronounce. It's an Aztec language, an Indian language. Second language, Spanish. Third language, English. He's about my age, I guess. He grew up in the foothills down there, as he explained it to me. And his farm was a couple miles away. So in the morning, they didn't have electricity. In the morning, they'd ride their mules over to the farm and farm. And then load up the mules with firewood and walk back. And I, and I asked him along the way, are you Catholic? And he said, no, I, just, I, can't, I can't do that Catholic thing, you know, because my ancestors were really bad. They were human sacrifice people. But I don't want anything to do with that. But when the Catholics came over, their missionary uh, approach was, it, "You can convert, you can believe, or we'll burn you at the stake." I, said, I don't want anything to do with that. I think Je- I like it. I like Jesus because He loves me. I said, "So you're a Christian?" Oh yeah, yeah, a Christian. But I don't want anything to do with the Catholic or the pagan. That's you know, it forces people to do things. Well, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that a pretty nice little summary of of a lot of these what's going on in these churches? Of, you know, are we going to be about power? Are we going to be about truth? Are we going to be about truth and love? And that seems to be the challenge. We either sacrifice truth or we sacrifice love. And this this little India fella, Indian fellow had it had it right. I I, I was uh, felt the privilege to be in his presence. Well, this mission movement that we have here wasn't a convert or die. It was a we will give you the truth in love movement. We have a little power, we have a powerful message. Nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. Well, this third great awakening happened in New York City. In 1857, a young businessman named Jeremiah Lamphere started a prayer meeting on Fulton Street. A week later, the stock market crashed. There was financial panic. And within six months, 10,000 people were gathering daily for prayer at noon. Before this, Charles Finney, the revivalist from the Second Great Awakening, said, the wave of prosperity in New York seems to be the death of the revival movement. But in this revival movement, whereas the previous Great Awakening had been highly emotional and, and involved kind of sensational preaching. This was just very well-ordered prayer. No speaking, basically just prayer. And people would pray short prayers had a punctual beginning, punctual ending, no hysteria. In 1858, the New York Tribune devoted an entire issue to the revival happening in New York City. The reason I have a personal connection with this is because the legacy of Jeremiah Lampier is being deliberately carried on by the King's College. I'm on the board of the King's College. There's a statue of Jeremiah Lampier that was at the American Bible Society and they moved from New York. When they moved, they donated that statue to the King's College. It's in the it's in the foyer of, of the university. I also have a connection because I have a friend who was the president of the Ocean Grove. Methodist Camp Association. Ocean Grove was founded in 1869. It was at the end of the rail line in New Jersey on the shore, Jersey Shore. That's where people would come and do vacations and stuff. Well, the Methodist owned a square mile. They called it God's Square Mile. They still own it today. The Methodist Encampment Association owns this square mile. And in the summers, they would have a, a, a church camp. But they still do today. Back then it was all tense. Now it's only partially tense. And you may have heard of somebody named Fanny Crosby, hymn writer, one of the most prolific hymn writer in American history, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Uh, she would go to this encampment, 1877 to 1897. There was a pathway that went from the main sanctuary down to the ocean shore called the Pilgrim Pathway. You may have heard the song, As We Walk the Pilgrim Pathway. So a lot of the references in her song, she was blind and wrote. So she wrote so many songs that she would use pseudonyms to publish the songs so the hymn books wouldn't uh, edit her out because they didn't have, like to have too many hymns from one person. Well, so this all, this all came from this one prayer revival. This one guy, he just started a prayer meeting. That's all he did. And then God blessed it. If you go there today that the auditorium still there in Ocean Grove. It went through a time period where it was just really becoming to the point where it was really lost its witness and it's, it's gone through a revival now and the witness is back. And they've retained this giant electric light bulb sign that's behind the stage that was from this early 20th century era. And it says, Holiness to the Lord. And that was their focus. How can we live a life that would be separate and apart from the world and live a holy life. Out of this holiness movement came prohibition. And prohibition, as we know, did not work politically, but it actually did work socially. America was a place where families were in tatters in in this era. And in many instances, the husband would not make it home with his paycheck because he would drink it all. It was it was a rampant problem. And they were addressing that problem with prohibition. And basically the focus was on take care of your wife and children instead of just drinking up your paycheck. And and it was that part of it was immensely successful. So this Philadelphia church with worldwide mission movement, that's ripples of which are still going on today. And Jesus said, hey. You took what you had and you did what you could with what you had. And that's what God blessed. Now, that that ought to speak very loudly to us, don't you think? That's what all God wants us to do is to take what we have and do what we can with what we have. I feel like I'm still participating in this Philadelphia church. And I I think I, I would say our church as a whole is. And the specific thing I can point to other than... That, that is really like that's really a continuation of this revival is the Stephen Lutz Harvesters Project, which our church helped start. And Stephen has come and, and spoken here. Many of you support the effort. I'll, t- I'll give you his latest model. He says he can start one stream with one person. That sounds like this, right? Just do what you can what you have, like Hudson Taylor starts with one person and it goes to 100 million people. Just start with one person. You pick a person that can find a hundred church leaders that will plant plant churches. A hundred hub churches. And this is not that hard if you find someone that has some denominational or uh, some uh, leadership capability to find a hundred churches. Those hundred churches each plant 40 churches. He says if you can start 250 of those streams, we can plant a million churches in 10 years. In his model, they take someone right where they are and train them in place, a 1,000 hours of training, to be a pastor. So this is like the Methodist and the Baptist movement on steroids because you're not just leaving it to themselves and saying you have the Bible in your hand. You're actually giving them some training. a 1,000 hours of training, and they can. their model right now, they can do that for $100. Three years of training for 100 bucks. The $100 is just for the printing. Because all, basically, all the training is volunteer. He's up to 40 streams that each has 40,000, or sorry, that together has 40,000 churches. If those streams fill out, that'll be 200,000 churches. So he's in the process of now building streams. Guess where? India and China. So he's building on what Hudson Taylor and William Carey started in this Philadelphia era. So these things continue on. And, and and so it is in each of these in each of these eras, we should expect to find examples of all seven churches. Why? Because when John wrote this, all seven churches were literal physical churches right there on the western coast of Turkey. They all existed simultaneously. So in the one sense, I think they do represent these eras of history, but in another sense they 're always here, and they 're always there 's always going to be examples of these churches and Of course, what we want to do, I think, is be like this Philadelphia Church, or like the early Ephesians Church, where we stand for truth, we don 't have lies that we go along with we don 't syncretize, but we stand for love we 're not just separate we 're also we 're also engaging with the culture so that 's the Philadelphian Church. An inspirational church, and the last church is the Laodicean church. Now, I picked nineteen nineteen as the start of the of the Laodicean church, and let me just let me just go through these eras again. Uh, so, uh, Ephesus, the the church of the. Of the truth, but not love, but losing love started truth and love, losing love thirty three to a hundred love relief from Pentecost to the to the apostle John, and then a hundred to three thirty is this Smyrna church, the church that has the persecution, the bitter church and and in that the seeds of of success for Christianity is sowed actually actually Rome falls. Three thirty to eight hundred is when the syncretism starts to come in as Rome makes the church official, and it starts getting polluted with the world. You got the Balaam problem, and then eight hundred to fifteen seventeen, you have official Christendom, and that is which church Thyatira, and and you have official Christendom. Now we are a Christian kingdom on earth. God is speaking, so now we have we have we have corruption that takes place, and then fifteen seventeen to uh, 1727 you got Sardis the the dead church has a reputation for being alive but really it's dead and this is the Reformation era and and all the in many of these churches you also have really good things going on there's a faithful remnant in each one and you know like in this in this era of corruption the seeds are sown for Philadelphia to happen because John Huss John Wycliffe William Tyndall' the the faithful seeds of this generation, so are sown for the success of the gospel in future generations. And then you have Philadelphia in this 1727 to 1919 where world missions just explode. Off. Starting just in my model, start with the Moravians. Probably, you know, it's got to be for every one thing we know about, it's got to be a million things we don't know about. And then the last segment is this Laodicean segment which I picked 1919, the Treaty of Versailles. So at the Treaty of Versailles it's a really good little episode that shows the hubris of the Laodicean church because in the Treaty of Versailles after World War I, a group of men sat in a room, pulled out a map and a set of pencils and drew the world we know today on a map. Arbitrarily, just totally arbitrarily, they said this will be Iraq and this will be Iran. So they took the Kurds, who had their own tribal identity and just split them into three parts. They actually literally started all the revolutions and the the schisms that are going They memorialize those things. The one good thing they did is they drew Palestine from Dan to Beersheba. That was a good thing. But... You know, it was just arbitrary. And, and this is this, this hubris of saying, you know, we can make the world in our own image. And the lukewarm church is kind of that way, that mentality. To the angel, the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. You're neither hot or cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. "...therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne." So this final era, this Laodicean era, is an era where people think they have all they need. It's an era of self-sufficiency. And it is an era where people think they're rich... It's an era of material prosperity. Sound familiar? So this is the era that we live in. Our fundamental problem in our era that we are affected with, that we need to fight, is blindness, poverty, nakedness, wretchedness, misery. That's the station of our world. And it thinks it's rich and it thinks it's self-sufficient. The church in the 20th century has fallen on hard times. This Barna survey said over half of pastors in the United States don't have a biblical worldview. And by biblical worldview, they meant things like, is there truth? Is there morals? That's a biblical worldview. Over half do not have a biblical worldview. And the single most telling statistic that would tell you whether a Pastor has a biblical worldview or not? Was whether or not they had. Can you guess? A, a seminary degree. That's right. A seminary degree. More, more seminary degrees, less biblical worldview. Because we don't need morals. We don't, we're self-sufficient. Who needs? Who needs the Bible? Who needs anything from God when we're self-sufficient? Uh, our churches are, however, incredibly rich. You know they're they're major they're major enterprises now with massive amounts of money rolling in, and I think it's pretty common for churches to focus more on the cash rolling in than on the impact and influence that they have in society. In fact, I think probably the the overriding characteristic of the 20th century church from World War One on uh, is retreat. The church the church. Um, Founded uh, the, the hospital movement. It was a movement, and there's first Presbyterian, or sorry, Presbyterian hospital here, and Methodist hospital there, and Baylor Hospital someplace. I mean that that we that was our idea. That was the Christian's idea. It's largely been taken over by secular government, schools. That was our idea. Universities. Harvard was founded by the Puritans in 1635 to train gospel ministers. So that their children wouldn't have to grow up without gospel ministers. By the way, in violation of the English king. Because you couldn't form a charter for a school without English permission. They did it anyway. Because they felt so strongly about it. And Harvard today is not sending out all that many Christian missionaries. <laughs> you know, that, that's not what they're known for. We have the opportunity to be a faithful remnant. So this is my era's. To finish the eras, I just want to look at verse 21 in chapter 3. And I'll repeat this again next week when we go back through the churches and look at the spiritual aspect, like what are these rewards and what is the problem and how can we apply that and that sort of thing. I want to just focus in on this idea of an overcomer. And if you're reading this, it's just worth grappling with. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne As I also overcame. Now overcome here is a Greek word nikeo. It means to be victorious, to, to conquest. And please consider as you go through and look at these things that if Jesus could overcome, and he says he did overcome, this can't be talking about new birth. Jesus was not born again. And we have to be born again because we're born spiritually dead in this world. And so we have to be born again spiritually to become alive. Jesus didn't have to be born spiritually to become alive. He already was. He came down from heaven. So what this has to be talking about is the life we live, the deeds we do, the faith walk we have. That has to be what this is talking about. Which makes explaining a lot of the things we're going to deal with hard. Because some of the stuff that Jesus is going to tell us are things we don't want to apply to us. And one of the approaches that we have as people when we have something that brings accountability to us is to deflect it onto someone else. And I think that's what we do often with these things is saying, well, that sounds really bad, so it must not be me, it's somebody else. What we have to grapple with is either Jesus used this term this way in this seventh church in a totally different way in the other six churches and didn't tell us or the pattern is I'm giving this message to my servants because I want them to be witnesses and I'm telling you to listen, understand and do. I'm coming, my reward is in my hand and I want you to overcome and I'm going to tell you what happens that's really wonderful if you do and what happens if you don't that's not so wonderful. It's either that or it is pick and choose. Well, this time it may, overcomers applies to me because I like what it's saying and next time it applies to somebody else because I don't like what it's saying. But the approach I'm going to take is I'm going to assume all these overcomers, it's, a, it's an opportunity to gain or lose rewards based on the life that we live because this whole message is given to my servants, the churches, the people who are already believers and that's going to create some difficulty. I'm not going to I'm not going to have a full explanation for what all these things are, but we'll grapple with it together because if we hear, understand and do, we get a tremendous blessing. And if we don't, we miss out. So I think we I think we want to do what we can to actually understand and incorporate these things because God has our best interest at heart. He wouldn't be telling us this if it wasn't for our, own, for our good, for our benefit, for our building up. But sometimes you have to realize you're miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked before you can see. You have, to, uh, you have to realize I'm impoverished before you can gain riches. And that's what our opportunity is going to be. As Laodiceans, we're going to have an opportunity as we now go back and look at the spiritual aspect of each of these churches and say, God, what do you have for me? How can you equip me to be an overcomer? And I think we can derive tremendous inspiration from these Philadelphians who had a little. They just had a little. Those Moravians, they just had a little. And they did what they could with what they had. Changed the world. And they they didn't necessarily get to see it change. They planted seeds. And we can be inspired by that and we have that opportunity ourselves. God, thank you for this amazing message, this Philadelphian church that's so inspiring, and the challenge of as being lay to sins, of seeing our nakedness, seeing our wretchedness. Lord, I pray that you will, as we go through these churches now in the coming weeks, you'll just take the scales off our eyes, help us see ourselves as we are, that we may gain the great riches you have for us, that we may that we may have the tremendous life that you have for us, that we may have the kind of fellowship and life that you long for us to have because we let you in. And I I pray that you'll just give us wisdom and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen.